Three, two, one. It's good to be back in the dun to dun dun dunny. Yeah, back in the dunny. Those claps mean we're back in the dunny. Yeah, just creating a conditioned response for our listeners to anticipate our silky smooth radio voice. Oh, good thinking. Lucky every, them. Yeah, every time they're out in public and they hear the noise of applause or clapping, they automatically expect these silky smooth voices. Yeah, just think next time they're in a stadium and there's tons of clapping, just how let down they'll be. Oh, just a let down. Yeah. Whatever they're observing, I'm sure won't compare. <laughs> to this. Oh, what a what a letdown for everyone uh, when they don't hear our radio smooth voice. It's yeah. a strange world out there, huh? Oh, it's strange right now. Yeah, COVID nineteen. It's a quiet, still world. It is. I did. We did see a car drive by the alley a little bit ago. That was pretty. That was exciting. Yeah, it's another human. There's another human out there. Yeah, this is and, great. And we're six six feet apart. We'll call it a rough six feet. Rough six feet, yeah. doing, doing that uh, social or physical distancing. Yeah, well, it's physical distancing with social connecting. Yeah. Something like that. Huh? So how has this changed your day-to-day professional life? Man, it is very different in a lot of ways. Haven't been coming into the office. Um, I've been staying at home doing telehealth, which is a huge transition, right? Like seeing clients over the computer. Oh, yeah. that's. Uh, I moved to telehealth as well. It's a big transition. It is, you know, um, I think initially, you know, like kind of feel a little bit of resistance about it, but I kind of also see there's a huge opportunity and it's probably going to be a part of our future in a lot of ways. Yeah. So you're not being dragged into the future kicking and screaming like I am. Yeah. yeah I'm enjoying watching you <laughs> kicking and screaming. Yeah. Using all this tech and all that sort oh, of stuff. Oh, man. Well, I, the one way that I can look at it is learning how to use all this tech is is novelty so it's learning it's helping my neuroplasticity and that's the way i gotta frame it so that there's some benefit to all of this yeah i'm so glad glad you brought up the neuroplasticity thing relating back to that podcast we dropped a while ago and the thing that i would think with that one novelty so telehealth is new for you yeah two and it's posing quite a challenge (laughs) yeah dude technology I mean, at the rate we're going, at the rate that I'm forced to adapt to technology right now, I may have an Instagram account at some point in the future. Instagram full Dan? Uh, I mean, it's not likely, but I mean, like, if this continued for 10 years, I may end up having an Instagram account. <laughs> so you're telling it would take 10 years of pandemic for you to get an Instagram account? 10 years of forced social isolation that required the use of technology? Wow. I guess that's what it is. I never thought I'd ever root for a pandemic, but <laughs> in this case, whatever it takes to get you an Instagram account. Would that be worth what I would have to post on Instagram? Absolutely not. And it would be <laughs> so much time for me showing you how to use Instagram that, no, like, let's end this pandemic. Let's keep Dan off Instagram. Yeah. This is okay. There we go. That's something to root for. Let's keep Dan Instagramless. Instagramless Dan, let's get this pandemic dealt with so that we can ensure that Instagramless Dan remains. Yeah, so let's keep it that way. Let's make sure Dan stays off Instagram. Yeah. Speaking of Instagram, uh, we got a shout out for Lake Mary. Uh, Shout out for Lake Mary. We did. We got a hashtag booyah Lake Mary from at Taylor Oster. Oh, well, thanks Taylor Oster. Yeah. I guess. 
Yeah, absolutely, you guess. One, <laughs> one thing I would say is, so I love riding out and the scenery around Lake Mary. I'm talking about being in Lake Mary. That's where it goes from being a lake to more of like a mud pond. What a great lake. <laughs> yeah, is Taylor, is Taylor a local? Yeah, she's from Flagstaff. Oh, okay. Well, that explains it. You say that with judgment. <laughs> well, not judgment. Just good contextual awareness in that um, people unfamiliar with what lakes traditionally look like may consider that to be a very beautiful lake yeah. on the inside. I've read about lakes. I've seen pictures of lakes. <laughs> yeah. Lake Mary fits the bill. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, what do we got today? Oh, yeah. We're going beyond flag. Yeah. Beyond flag. I'm excited for today. So who are we interviewing today? Yeah, no doubt. So for today's episode, we're going beyond flag with Devana Blackhorse, a clinical mental health counselor who is currently working towards a PhD in interdisciplinary studies from, well, let me ask you a question first, Dan. What school makes Princeton and Yale look like a junior college that holds their classes online in the bottom of the ocean? Junior college, online classes in the bottom of the ocean, Princeton and Yale. Princeton and Yale. Yeah. What school makes them look like that? Uh, <laughs> NAU, duh. <laughs> oh, the Harvard of the West. Harvard of the West. Yeah, okay. Go Lumberjays. In Devana's program, her studies focus on the psychological impact of toxic landmining exposure on the Navajo Reservation and historical trauma among Native Americans. In 2017, alongside Ann Collier, Chair of Psychological Sciences at NAU at the time, and Sean Scavaland, a local artist, they together developed a social practice art exhibition titled Hope and Trauma in a Poisoned Land, which took place in 2017 and portrayed the impact of uranium mining on Navajo lands and its people. Ooh, powerful. Powerful stuff. I anticipate we'll hear about that today. Yeah. Most recently, in November of 2019, she was a featured speaker at the National History Institute's annual conference on reciprocal healing, which took place in Sedona. Devana is bright, strong, and courageous. I'm really looking forward to sitting in the dunny with her. What are you looking for in this one, Dan? Oh, I'm looking, I'm really looking forward to this interview today. So even introducing what you just referenced in terms of her research and installment, I think it's going to be a real powerful opportunity to sit back and listen and learn. In fact, that reminds me, I did the, as part of that online course I'm doing about happiness, Yeah. Um, I did the Strengths Finder. Yeah. Guess what my number two strength is? Um, being a jet. Well, okay, what is it? <laughs> it's love of learning. Love of learning. Yeah. Right behind number one. You want to know what number one is? Uh, being a jackass. <laughs> no, that one was way down on the list. <laughs> Three? <laughs> All right, what was one? Uh, number one was judgment. Judgment? Yeah. So not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm good at judging? Yeah. One is judgment, two is love of learning. So you take your knowledge and you make judgments about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, the, I use my number two strength to really hone in on my number one strength. Yeah, so the fun thing that I would say there is that maybe judgment and discernment are two different things here. Well, what's most important, though, is that you can know with my love of learning and my ability to judge that you can come to me for advice at any time. And not feel judged. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, in all honesty, I'm, I'm really looking forward to sitting back and learning from Devana. 
Um, I think it's going to be a real opportunity to understand more about some of those experiences um, in her, you know, upbringing and traditional heritage. So I'm looking forward to learning. Yeah, certainly. Such a neat person. I think this will be a great interview. I'm really looking forward to it. All right. Well, let's go beyond flag with Devana Black Horse. Welcome to Beyond Flag, a Beyond the Pines production, created by, with, and for the people of Flagstaff, building connection in the town we love. We are your hosts, Dr. Daniel J. Phillips, and Cody Bayless, also known as Dr. Chinchilla Nice Nice. Thanks for tuning in as we go Beyond Flag, straight from the dunny of our observatory. Very cool. So we're back in the dunny, and we're sitting here with Devana. Devana, thanks for joining us. Would you mind introducing yourself a little bit and then talking about what your day-to-day life is like? Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, I'll introduce myself in Navajo. Uh-huh. Um, hi, my name is Devana and... Yeah, I'm from Big Mountain, Arizona, and I'm a direct descendant of historical trauma. So I'm kind of in through those lens is how I basically decided to come to flag because I felt like I was, you know, being closer to home. It was it was just a little easier to be connected to that spiritual part of myself. Mm-hmm. It was really hard living in the city. I couldn't do the city. There was no free range, especially for my kids. Oh, so yeah. I just I said, you know what? I think we need to make this move. Plus, they had a trilingual school here in Flag. So I wanted my kids to learn the Navajo language. Mm-hmm. And so that was one of the things I enrolled in when I was finishing my associate's degree in, at Glendale Community College. And I was excited to come back. I was excited to, you know, be in a place where I saw a lot of indigenous people. I was excited to be close to the sacred mountain. It's just important to me to always return back, you know, to where I come from and to my roots. But unfortunately I had to, um, I couldn't go all the way back to the reservation. You know, there's a lot going on there with, you know, mining and relocation. So I decided it would be best for me to go to school. And so I, you know, enrolled into NAU. Okay. Psychology. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so is that what your day to day looks like now? Is it a lot of schooling? Yes. Uh. Yes. Too much schooling. <laughs> yeah. I didn't yeah. realize uh, how much this was going to take out of my life every day. I was telling my son, I don't know how people do this. How do people do this? This is so difficult. And I feel like there's not enough time in the day to get all these papers done, to get all this reading done, to, you know, do my job at the same time. And he's like, Mom, didn't you know that people who get their doctorates aren't supposed to sleep? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well so then that gives us a little in you're working on your doctorate so yeah, yeah what what degree degree program is it that you're working on and then you're working as well on top of completing yes. your phd um wow yeah i'm in the interdisciplinary <laughs> health yeah. program and i'm working 
my GA is with Dr. Jenny Ingram and Dr. Angelina Castaño, and we're working on indigenous ethical issues in STEM. Mm. So we're basically looking at the pipeline issues that indigenous people face and why we don't have that much representation of the indigenous people in sciences, science, technology, engineering, mm-hmm. and mathematics. And ha- if that's related to any taboos or any cultural practices, because mm-hmm. Dr. Ingram is a chemistry professor and she found that, that um, some of her students had an issue working with um, dissection, working with human lungs and things like that. So because she was native, she was able to navigate through that. But her, I, her thought process was like, well, what, how does this work for other indigenous students, you know, who don't have a native professor or profession that knows about these things and that can help them navigate this better. And so, yeah, we set up a series of interview questions and surveys. And right now we're in the interview process we just recently went to Wisconsin for a conference and um, presented just the beginning of our work and some of the stuff that we have collected. Wow. How yeah. far are you into the program? Uh, two years. Two this years. is my last semester. So, yay, I'm going to be yeah. done really soon. I'm just trying to get through. I'm getting that senioritis thing where I just don't want to do anything. And you're not supposed to get a C in the program. And now I'm this semester, I'm like, I haven't gotten any Cs. I've gotten good grades. Maybe I'll just get that C. You know? <laughs> Let it slide. Yeah. It's just, it's a burnout. It's, it's a lot of work. Yeah, it's it a lot is. of work, but I feel like the stuff that I'm learning is just amazing. Yeah. I mean, I have... I, when you're in a, a graduate program, you kind of have more autonomy in what you're, you're going to choose as far as a profession. You have more autonomy in some of the classes that you want to select. So I've taken a lot more feminist classes, um, stuff like gender and nature, women, um, indigenous feminism, things like that. So yeah. it's been, it's been a, a huge deal for me this semester to learn all these things. And plus I'm doing medical anthropology, which also has a lot of um, very, very great um, readings that we have been um, exposed to. So yeah, it's just a lot of growth and it's a lot of like, whoa, you know, I can't believe this. And then your mind just like, you know, trying to like absorb all this information and trying to apply it to myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I feel a bit like a parallel process here because like there's so many questions I want to ask you Mm -hmm. and it's probably what your life is like. It's so many, you just make these uh, mentions of tangents that would be so interesting to learn about. It sounds like that's been your life for uh, two and a half years now, finishing up. Yeah, I think it's just, um, well, when I was in the counseling program, it was wonderful. I was like, yeah, I'm finally doing this. And I thought I would stop there. Mm -hmm. But I just kind of felt a little stuck in, in this Western ideology of just practicing under these rules that, um, you know, you don't want to break these, your ethical, um, 
there's just a lot of ethical dilemmas. Mm -hmm. And it was hard. I was just like, you know what? I don't know if I can do this because I want to do more. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like we're not doing enough. Mm -hmm. And I feel like a lot of this is because we don't, we have to indigenize a lot of our practices. We have to indigenize Mm -hmm. counseling. We have to indigenize research. Uh, We have to understand historical trauma on a deeper level and understand why people are I mean the native population they're the hugest population when I went to started my internship I was the only native like well there's one other native person there Marvin but we were the only two there but there was everybody else was that was staff was white and all the patients were native so that just wow. kind of felt odd to me. And it, it kind of, um, that whole, like, feelings of internalized oppression kind of came back. And then I started to feel this sense of shame and, um, like, wow, what, what does this mean, you know? And how do I, there was a lot of, like, microaggressions and different things that I experienced. And... I was like, wow, I need to learn more. I need to know how we're going to implement things like this so that people, especially professionals who are working that are indigenous, can, you know, better handle these situations when we're in a place where there's a dominant race and, you know, we feel a little stuck, like just, I don't know, practicing the ways that really we're not used to, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just like Dave was saying, I have like a million questions going through my mind right now. You're mentioning some things that are so important, I believe. I wanted to go back to something that you mentioned. Um, this really stuck out to me when you were talking about the importance of, and the word I heard you use was to indigenize counseling, research, mm-hmm. and there was one other thing. Um, I, forgot. I, I I caught the counseling and research, though. So yeah. Counseling really stuck out to me. Yeah, I wanted to hear what that would look like in practice. It sounded like your experience in the program was like, man, this is we're not proportionally or accurately best represented here. Mm-hmm. I want to make changes. Yeah. What does that look like? Well, there's a lot of... Um, I think people need to recognize first that Indigenous people have a foundation already. They have a knowledge base and... You know, in the beginning, it was you need to um, go to school, you need to take this medicine and do things in this way. And Mm -hmm. then Native Americans had a more holistic view on how we dealt with things. And now it feels like people are trying to go back to that. And um, so I think so I'm taking a CBPR class now, um, Community Based Participatory Research. And one of the things that um, Dr. Duran, um, Bonnie Duran has taught us is that um, don't make plans without us. I mean, we want to be a part of that planning process. We want to be involved in the research. We don't want people coming out to the reservation and with their own questions that they want to prove right, you know. We want to be a part of that process. We, we have the knowledge of our own people. We know the issues. You know, we have our own, um, our own representatives that are dealing with these situations. We have our own people in public health that know what's going on. And those are the people uh, that we need to rely on for this information to empower people to 
work and do research, you know, themselves and partnership with them. And I feel like we need to change that model of let's do research on, you know, this group of people and find out what's wrong with them. And then let's fix their behavior mm-hmm. because the, that usually doesn't work. Is it working for us now? No. You know, <laughs> we have high rates yeah. of suicide. We have high rates of um, addiction and drug use and it and domestic violence, you know, mm-hmm. everything socially, we're just psycho socially and biologically impacted. Yeah. Oh, you mentioned the impact of historical trauma. Yeah. And something I heard you say that really stuck out to me was like, we know, we know what we're doing. Like, it sounds like empowering is the word that I heard you use also. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it doesn't look like asking these questions and coming out to the reservation to find answers through the white man lens, if I hear it right. But it's kind of like empowering what's already happening there to grow, if I, if I hear you right. Yeah, it's really hard to, um, self-governance is really hard. And then like, uh, I feel like we're just adaptable people and we need to, we, a lot of people's lens, especially indigenous people has been distorted, you know, through this lens of trauma. We, the way we Mm -hmm. see things is very, um, traumatized. And that really debilitates us and inhibits our ability to think past, you know, what the possibilities could be for Mm self-determination and how we move forward as a a people. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's it's kind of um, like mining. It's like when people go onto the reservation and they mine the land and they strip it and they take, you know, what they need from it and leave it and the land's traumatized. Mm. So people also are traumatized and they're also their their way of thinking is is mined. Yeah. Our way of being is mined, just like the land has been mined. So they basically took what we know and replaced it with this Western knowledge and. And that has really changed how we use our intelligence and how we see things, you know, um, where we place our priorities as far as what the real issues are. And I feel like we've been given a gift of intelligence, you know, from our creator. And that's how we are adaptable. But if we're not using it responsibly, then, and we don't know how to use it responsibly because we're all these like practices that we're using are not working because they're not really our way. They're not teaching us about ourselves. Mm -hmm. We don't have enough opportunities to see ourselves and in a good light, in Mm -hmm. a positive light. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Boy, this is so powerful. I could listen to this for hours. <laughs> it makes me think in real time, your experience with this, you're kind of describing those moments where you were in higher education and you felt oppressed in a way. You could feel mm-hmm. uh, the ambiance, the tone of feeling um, like you're trying, you're being handed an ethnocentric Western view Mm -hmm. that you're expected to operate within. Yeah. And yet you have all this foundation basis. So then how did you overcome that? You've, you've persisted in graduate education, despite having that experience of feeling intimidated or oppressed. Mm -hmm. Um, How did you overcome that? Well, I think it really starts from when I was a kid. Um, I didn't, I, there was a lot of this intergenerational trauma 
is something that I was brought up in. You know, I have veterans in my family. I have people that um, worked on the railroads and had to leave to get different jobs. I've had my my father's a boarding school survivor. Um, I've had stories of the long walk passed down to me. It was just this complex, this idea of complex trauma just being everywhere and then being a kid growing up in that and knowing that something's wrong, you know, just, I think I've always had that psychological way of thinking about things Mm -hmm. and looking up at the world, like, you know, somebody like people, something's not right. You Mm -hmm. know, this is really isn't the way it should be. Mm -hmm. But I was raised a lot at my childhood with my Nellie, my grandma, my dad's mom. And I felt like I had a lot of time at sheep camp and sheep camp is like where she lives. So there's no electricity, there's no running water. Um, but we had a lot of horses. We had a lot of sheep. We had a huge cornfield and we had free range. I mean, we'd let our, our cows go and then get them back months later. And we do branding. We had all these, we had a, we had a way of life Mm -hmm. and we were very rich and people with, sometimes visit us you know outsiders and say wow you guys are poor you guys don't have running water you don't have electricity I'm thinking like we have a few wells that are great around here they're not contaminated you know we have a lot of animals Mm -hmm. um I felt pretty rich but in their eyes that was being poor and I was like okay well and then the mining happened and then they put fences up and they blocked us off. And at that point, I was like, oh, my God, this is what poverty is. This is actually real poverty. Wow. Uh, poverty, what they saw poverty as wasn't mm-hmm. real poverty. I don't know if they, like, you need our ways. You know, we're going to, mm-hmm. like, now we're going to give you commodity foods, which led to, you know, our high rates of diabetes right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just like a complete change. But before that time, I had a lot of free range. I was, I had, a, like I said, I, we had a lot of livestock. Where, so where was this at? Where? In Big Mountain, Arizona. Oh, okay. okay. So I spent a lot of time outside. Um, I would build tree houses and just like, so the Navajo way, when you're born, your umbilical cord is buried, you know, in the land that, um, in your sheep camp and, you know, where your grandma's out, just your homeland. And... So the I that the way of thinking is that we have that connection to Mother Nature. Mm-hmm. You know, that's our connection. Like once we leave the mother's womb, you know, this is also our mother and this is who's going to nurture us. Mm-hmm. And we need to respect that. So I feel like when the adults and different people around me failed me, I had Mother Nature and it really helped me to see that I was a part of a bigger thing, Mm -hmm. you know, the universe, like I had a place. Mm -hmm. So that really was a healing process for me to get through all those hard times and to feel the pain and suffering that the environment was feeling. And I was like, you know what, this is what I'm going to do forever. Mm -hmm. (laughs) As a child. Yeah. Yeah. As a child, I, I just, I just kind of knew I was like, and I knew I was going to be a counselor. It's like, I'm going to help people. You know, this is my way. And I just kind of held on to that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, 
it was just kind of, I, I really feel like mother nature did that. I really feel like being connected to the environment, like that sentient, you know, awareness and connection was really huge for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you talk more about that connection to the environment um, mm-hmm. and also how it relates to the Navajo way, like you were saying? Well, um, you know, John Bowlby says that you need a good connection to your mother and or a caregiver. So indigenous people feel the same way. We, we do value that relationship to our mother. We do value our caregivers, but we also recognize that as an extension to that, the environment is also the mother, you know, is also someone that we embrace and she's going to be the one to nurture us, you know, for the rest of our Mm -hmm. lives. So I feel like, um, That's just something that uh, we need to recognize. And it's like this reversal um, thing that we have and responsibility that we have to the environment. Mm -hmm. I mean, we value corn. A lot of indigenous cultures value corn. And corn can't be sustained without human contact. Mm -hmm. So the way we see it is that the holy people gave us that gift. And we can't, it can't grow without us. So I don't know if you've ever tried to plant corn, you need to nurture it. You need to plant it. It has to be done right. Otherwise, it's not going to, it's not going to grow. It's not going to flourish. Right. Yeah. You're talking about this two-way relationship between us Mm -hmm. and our environment. Yeah. And it just seems to be so lost in many ways today. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if even like you were saying as a child, at at a big mountain growing up thinking like, I need to do something with this. It sounded like you had this vision for yourself and the environment was very much a part of that. Mm -hmm. Your study is, a lot of it is in uranium. Is that right? Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about uranium mining and your, what you're investigating and what, what's important about it to you? I like to look at the psychological impact of it and the spiritual impact and how that has completely, how that's something that's ongoing, not something that's a long time ago. Cause people, when they hear the word historical trauma or colonization, they think that this is something that happened in the Cowboys and Indian days, you mm-hmm. know, but it's actually still happening now. It's like trying to like spread this awareness. Like this issue is happening right now. And it's, it happened to me as a child and I saw like the way it affected my family. I saw the way, um, the elders were really heartbroken and there was a lot of sadness, you know, knowing that people can just come in and start dictating your life and telling you what you can do and what you can't do and forcing you into a way of living that you're not used to. And seeing what that did to my Nellie, my dad's mom, she was really heartbroken. Mm -hmm. And she lived until she was almost 100 years old. And I think that was just the thing that really struck me the most is to see how it affected her way of life and how she was... um, prohibited from riding the horse after a while you know like you can't go far and your livestock's being reduced and it just really um 
the way people took care of animals when I was a kid was completely different to the way they get treated now, you know, mm. and the way the environment gets treated now. It's almost like just forcing people to make this disconnection, like, and treat the environment and animals like they're just inert matter. They're just for our purposes, and we mm. can control this thing. Just like here in Flag, you know, they... The sacred mountain is called Okoslid, and it's sacred to the indigenous people here, but it's being mined, you know, for recreation, and it's renamed. They It's renamed to say, um, San Francisco Peaks, which is a colonizer, St. Francis Frere. So, like, all these um, sacred places and um, people are just renamed, like they're, they're the identity of them are is just stripped. The indigenous identity is stripped and mm. it's replaced, you know. So I think now like I've recently went on this strike of not eating meat because of the way animals are being treated. And I just don't agree with that because there's this um you know, some animals are just being in pins all day long, just sitting there. And then reproduction is being forced on them. And then when they have their babies and they're done feeding, they just take them away. And it just, it just made me, it kind of made that connection. Like that's what they do to women in this culture where we don't have agency anymore in our own decisions over our bodies, you know, over a lot of things. And, we've the women the environment and animals all have like been mined in some way or another yeah well i've heard you reference mining right like i heard you even say mine mine the mind yeah the mind has been mined which i that kind of blew my mind (laughs) Yeah. yeah but then you're also talking about the environment of all the the environmental ways in which mining has happened, it, it seemed that uranium has been one that you've really taken to. In 2017, in the intro, I was mentioning that you did a social art exhibition, mm-hmm. and that was around mining. Was that correct? Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that exhibition and, um, yeah, just more about it? Yeah. Um, I was working with Dr. Ann Collier, and we had several meetings, and she wanted to know more about it, and... Uh, I wanted to, we wanted to try to make that connection between mining and, you know, psychology. So we just kind of um, started talking about ways that we could implement traditional healing practices for people who are suffering from this. But first, it needed a name, it needed, we needed to know more about it. So we didn't want to go on to the, we went to the, to, um, to Cameron and we presented our work and everybody was just kind of like, okay, this is, you know, people come out and say, tell us this all the time. Um, this is nothing new. Mm. So we kind of like thought we need to kind of change up our, the way we're going about this. We need to do something for the community before we, you know, attempt to go out there and try to take something. So, we started talking about art projects. We had a meeting with Sean Scoplin and um, John Tano, and they he John um they had another exhibition that they did with fire, and they said, well, we could do the same thing, and we thought this is great. You know, we could 
we could bring in grassroots. We could bring in people from NAU that are doing research like Janie Ingram and uh, Tommy Rock. We could bring in um, UNM, University of New Mexico, because they're doing the birth cohort study. Um, it was just a great opportunity to bring all these people who were very knowledgeable about this topic and and basically just teach people about it give them one week or no one one day to just sit in a room and we're just going to give you all this information and we we also had um what was her name the lady who wrote yellow dirt uh it'll come to me later but we had her come out and we recruited all these artists and we just basically threw all this information onto them. And then after that day, we took them to uh, uranium mines and drove them around and showed them the proximity, you know, how close people live to these mines and just to give them a good idea of what we're talking about. Because some of the mines, not too long ago, a few years ago, they finally put signs up. But but before that, there was none. So there was like toys out there. There was um, alcohol, you know, bottles. And just you can tell that, you know, kids had crossed over and played Mm. in those mines without knowing. And um, I think one of the, on our last the last mine we visited, we we're coming down and there was a birthday party happening and everybody was just sitting there like, what, Yeah. what is going on here? You know? And I think it just, I didn't realize it was going to really have that emotional impact. And, and then we also like, uh, had community members come together and talk about their stories. And it was like, a, it was a real emotional, uh, day and then on the last day when we got everybody back together, um, I gave a speech about the cultural and psychological impacts and through my experience, you know, and the stuff that I went through. And I think that's what, at that point, everybody just broke, mm-hmm. broke down. People were crying, people were angry, and people were just... They're like, why didn't you warn us? Why didn't you tell us this was going to be like this? You know, mm-hmm. this is even um, the native artists that were part of the group live near these areas, but didn't have all that information. And they were really upset. And mm-hmm. I I just told Anne, I was like, this is, this is what you call decolonization. This is what you call like healing from historical trauma because people, you, it's all the, almost all the symptoms of grief when mm-hmm. somebody dies, you know, mm-hmm. you're crying, you're angry, you know, you're in disbelief. Like why would people lie to us and not tell us this information when it's happening just right here adjacent to us? Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was, it was huge. And I just said, this is like, this is good because now they're going to go away for a year. They're going to think about this and they're going to create an, a masterpiece and mm-hmm. a piece of art. And then they're going to bring it back mm-hmm. and, and which we did, it went up and then we won the Viola award for that. It was huge. People were really <laughs> moved by it. 
I went to the exhibit and watched people walk around and look at some of the stuff. And I would just listen to the conversations. And that's all I could ever ask for is just to to create those conversations and to make it happen. Well, <laughs> congrats! On, yeah, it was it was amazing. Uh, it is. It's amazing to listen to, and and you actually, to me, listening to it, I hear how you played out the process of wanting to respect the area you're trying to represent, mm-hmm. saying that at first you tried to go in, and and do something, and yeah. then you took a step back and said, "We need to um, get investment from the artists, get information from the mm-hmm. people that live here." Yeah, and and make it a grassroots thing and then Mm -hmm. we collaborate and work together to share with one another yeah and that was before the whole cbpr stuff like i i kind of had to learn it myself uh this the next time i went out there because a lot of the people that showed up at those meetings were elders and i'm over here presenting to them in english and it just oh wow it was just like cognitive dissonance and like the way I was presenting myself. And I was a little, um, ashamed that I was not showing them that respect. So I said, I have to do this again. I have to completely do this again. And I translated everything into Navajo and I went back and I spoke to them you know, and I put all the terminology in Navajo so that they could understand. So that was speaking to everybody. Mm-hmm. And it was so rewarding because after that, people wanted to tell their stories. People mm-hmm. wanted to like tell us things and they wanted to be a part of it. And the elders were laughing and they were included. And it was, it was so amazing. Yeah. I was, that's all I could ask for is mm-hmm. because we respect our elders, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're a huge part of who we are and they need to be a part of this process mm-hmm. too. And it was really nice to see them, you know, yeah, see them there. You're living out your vision of, you know, young Devana as a young girl in Big Mountain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'm sensing a very strong connection to your language. Um, I was wondering if you could talk more about that. It sounded like it was important to you to go back and learn how to give this presentation Mm -hmm. in Navajo so that you could deliver it to the elders. I heard you mention earlier also um, that it was important to you to have your children in a school where they would learn Navajo as well. Yeah, Yeah, I think language is important. I mean, our language is very poetic. It's very descriptive. And sometimes when I'm with my sisters, there's certain things that just don't sound right when I say it in English. And I'm like, this person is being like, you know, Joel. And then we look at each other and we're like, <laughs> Dodana, Dina. We're yeah. like, yes. And then it just, it just yeah. makes sense, yeah. you know. And it, I don't know. It's just, it's just a part of who we are. I grew up. My grandma raised me for many years as a kid, so she, we she only talks Navajo, yeah. and I was very fluent when I was young. But when my dad came back and you know took us back. Um, he didn't really think it was important for us to know Navajo. He told me that if I knew Navajo at that level, that I would have an accent and that people wouldn't take me serious Mm -hmm. and I wouldn't fit into the white man's world because, uh, they would be frustrated with, with me, you know, with the way I used the language. And it was, so he never, he just kind of like didn't 
push it on us to learn. It didn't really want us to go through those struggles. And like I said before, he was, he went to boarding school and he was forced to, um, not talk Navajo Mm -hmm. and he was beat for it. Mm -hmm. So I think just that being passed on to us and his experience, he just wanted to protect us. And then I guess like for me, I, when I hear that, I would just think that it totally informed your experience. You know, when you were talking about what it was like growing up and just thinking something's not quite right. Yeah. 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 I think, um, I feel like it, it's harder to like, even the stuff that my dad went through and the people that like that generation that really went through a lot of trauma it's hard even today to get through, like to tell him about, you know, no, we we need to go back, you know, because I mean, my dad, uh, because of all the stuff that he went through, he really suffered from alcoholism. So it was something that it just didn't want to, well, John Trudell. Okay. He's somebody that I follow since I was young. Um, and he's the one who talks about mining of the mine as, like as well and he talks about the drunken Indian and how we have to uh, be thankful for them because they were in this place where they didn't want to be adopt this new culture but they weren't allowed to be who they were so they just decided to be nothing like, I'm just going to be nothing. And as the next generation looking down at that, it's like, what is, what are we going to do about this? You know, um, our fans, some, they're lost. So we see that they're lost. And I think if he completely adopted a Christian way, I'd be completely Christianized and I'd be, I'd have different views right now. Mm-hmm. But because I saw him suffering and I saw him refusing to completely be assimilated and other, other uh, men to be completely assimilated, uh, I knew that like there was something, some work that needed to be done there, that they were resisting something. So they were, that was a message for me to revitalize my language, to mm-hmm. revitalize who I was. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Uh, you know what, when you were talking about this, this just jumped to my mind. Dan, I don't know if you know us, but so I used to teach the addictions class at NAU, right? Yeah. And that's how I met Devana initially. It was through that class. She was one of my students. So I was the white guy in the front of the class, given this Western <laughs> perspective perspective on yeah. how to treat reinforcing those disorders. ethical standards that come from that ethnocentric perspective. That was me. And Devana <laughs> gave, there was a presentation or every student had a class uh, presentation to do on a drug of choice. And Devana asked if she could do hers on historical trauma. I was like, yes, please. And I just remember you giving, I was enamored, like hundred percent. Just I was so enamored by everything that you were saying. And I hear you talking about historical trauma a lot in, in this interview thus far. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just assuming that some of our listeners might not be totally familiar with that concept or even oh, okay. what it is. Do you think, like in a nutshell, can you t- kind of break down what is historical trauma and what you're referring to? And yeah, when we use that word or those words, I guess. Okay. Yeah, I'm sorry. I usually start with that too. Uh, historical trauma is was defined by Maria Braveheart Yellowhorse, or did I say that right? Braveheart, yeah. and um, or Yellowhorse Braveheart, 
And she defined it as the ongoing cumulative emotional and psychological wounding over, you know, across generations. And it's also in one's own lifespan. So it's not just stuff that has happened in the past. It's stuff that we're dealing with right now because history is something that we're making every day, like yesterday's history. Mm-hmm. So it's just this thing that is just happening all the time and it gets passed on. And I think it's, it's really has been inscribed in our DNA and like who we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I actually had an experience with this as a young 20 year old. I, um, I worked as a paraeducator for kids um, in special education way, way back. Um, And there was one of the students that I, you know, there's like um, sometimes in life, there's people that you build a real connection with. And one of the students that I built a real connection with was a native student in the area that I was in. And, um, and one day he was crying and I was really impacted. I was like, Oh, what's going on for you? And I thought something had gone on in the school setting um, I kind of was like in a position where I, I wanted to be a protector and like, yeah, what happened to you? So we can go fix this thing or take <laughs> care of what, whatever made you feel this way. And yeah, he told me that he was crying for his people, for the ancestors, mm-hmm. um, and his people and the trauma that they endured. Um, and it was so powerful. Um, and in that moment, for me, what I was really attuned to was his connection to his family, his heritage beyond like the family that he lived with, beyond um, the people in his immediate environment, but yeah. just his genuine, deep connection to his people. Yeah, um, I feel like indigenous people are very loyal to the suffering, you know, of their ancestors and the suffering of their people and the suffering of the environment. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of that gets displaced though. I think, um, they call it displaced loyalty Mm -hmm. because people either you're, so when I was younger, you know, I read the story, I read Jack Kerouac's book and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm just going to go live on the wild side and go travel the world and do all these things and just not, you know, maybe I'll just write about everything and make it a book. And, uh, I feel like I had this kind of warrior spirit in me that I needed to do something with. Hmm. And at the time I didn't know much about myself as much as I thought I did. And I kind of displaced that into trying to live life on the edge, trying to be uh, a radical, trying to, um, I I mean, drinking and um, just doing whatever I wanted to try to fulfill that. But what I didn't realize at the time is that I was displacing that, that warrior spirit in me and that I had a fight somewhere else that I was not pursuing. And I, and it's because of this feeling of, am I, you know, I should be dead. Survivor's guilt. You know, I should mm-hmm. be dead. I shouldn't be here. Like, my people suffered so I could be here. You know, and they were great people. They were They were the real, you know, indigenous people that we look up to and that we should be like, but what am I, you know, 
nothing close to that. So I feel like we try to match that suffering and sometimes it's mal- it becomes maladaptive mm-hmm. where we drink and do all these things that isn't good for us, but we feel like we're being wild. We're, we feel like we're feeling that wild Indian yeah. role that people portray us as because we don't have good images of ourselves. We just yeah. have the cowboys and Indian image that people see us as. Yeah. But in reality, you know, we don't really know who we are sometimes. Yeah. We start to attach ourselves to the wrong images of indigenous, uh, being indigenous, yeah. like mascots and all these other things that are harmful and that aren't, yeah. don't really represent us. I mean, I've traveled to Detroit and people ask me, oh, you live in a teepee. Do you, li- do you hunt wow. buffalo? And it's like, no, I'm a wow. sheep herder. Yeah. <laughs> wow. You know, I don't. I don't know, like, they they thought we were all dead. Yeah. That was their thinking. It was like, yeah. oh, I, we can't believe, like, there's a little Indian here. I was their little Indian. You know, I was yeah. like your little token Indian. Yeah. And at the time, I didn't know that was what was happening to me. I'm like, oh, this is kind of cool. And, you know, people like like me, I'm a little exotic, and I'll go with this. But later, I realized what was happening. It's just like this misrepresentation of who I really was. Yeah. And because I wasn't living in a teepee or hunting buffalo, in a way, I was a little ashamed. Like, oh, my God, you know, I'm not that Indian they want me to be. Mm. And so, you know, there's times I just kind of played along like, okay, well, I guess, yeah, sometimes go to teepees, you know. (laughs) But then late I went home and I'm like, holy cow, that's. I'm a kind of ashamed of myself. Like, why did I do that? And, you know, I wasn't honoring who I was. And I think that really changed something in me where when I left from there, I started to learn more about myself. I started to embrace my, you know, being Diné, being Navajo. And that was a huge thing for me because I started to feel honored, you know, to be a descendant of my grandmother and their struggles from a long walk. I started reading about their struggles and I changed my, where I place my loyalty, you know, maybe I'm going to, um, be an activist now. I'm going to do this. And I told my dad, like, I want to be an activist. And he said, that's a death wish. You know, that all activists die and they get killed and just kind of killed, tried to, burst my bubble and I was like well I guess I'm gonna go out like that but at least I'm gonna go out you know yeah fighting for what I believe in getting in tune to connecting to what was there Mm -hmm. underneath yeah and for him his idea about that was informed by his experience yeah like um maybe not even physical death but the way you speak about it is so fluid to dip in and out of analogy that Mm -hmm. he had that kind of cultural death and he had to become yeah. You use the word like nothing or empty as mm-hmm. a means for not to assimilate yeah. as a complete compromise. So mm-hmm. he experienced a bit of a death of that and yeah. you felt that wild self. Mm-hmm. You came to connect yourself. For me, I had questions in my mind going on like, well, how did that transition happen? <laughs> That's a big mental shift. Um, is that Was that just a process for you or was there an epiphany, like a moment of just realization with that or were you moving that direction uh it was I didn't think I was ever gonna really find my way Mm -hmm. I was lost for a very long time Mm -hmm. 
uh, I had my first kid and I was like, oh, things change. And I said, wow, this is that, this is the next generation I'm looking at. Mm-hmm. This is, I, I'm responsible now. Like I've, before I was never really responsible for anything mm-hmm. and it was just me and I just did whatever I wanted. And I felt like having a child changed that. And I had to be a better person because now it was my responsibility to pass those things on. And then I started to remember, you know, my, my dreams and my goals and the things that I really wanted to do. And I just started slowly changing my way of thinking. But I think you have to realize like when somebody comes from a place of trauma it's hard to get out of that mindset. Mm-hmm. There, it's hard to to change the way you think. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, I had to come back home because at that time I was living in Kansas. Mm-hmm. I had to come back home. I had to be around family mm-hmm. because before, you know, you're thinking, I don't need family. I don't need anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, I can do this alone. But at that time, it just kind of came like, I need family. Mm-hmm. I need my homeland. And I'm yearning for that connection again. And I've been so disconnected for so long that I needed balance. Mm-hmm. I needed, and because no matter what we're going through, we're always trying to achieve balance in some way. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why people drink because they're trying to balance mm-hmm. something within themselves to feel better. Mm-hmm. And I, the other stuff wasn't working, you know, and it was putting me in a, bad place and I wanted to change and um especially for my son and I I started then my focus was to be a good mother Mm -hmm. you know a good mother and then I my partner ended up passing away when I was pregnant with our third son and then I was like holy shit Oh, I'm sorry. Am I supposed to? It's okay. I'm like, you know what? The odds are against me. People say, you know, that if there's not a father in the household, my kids are more likely to be delinquents. My kids are more likely. I'm I'm basically going to fail. And this is this whole patriarchal thinking of like, we need a man in the family to, you know, be successful. But that, that was my way of thinking then. And I was like, okay, well, I got to go to school because now I got to be a mom. I got to be a dad and maybe hopefully find a daddy along the way. (laughs) But I did, I went to school and the first class that I took was, um, parenting and psychology blew my mind. I saw myself in it. I saw my kids in it and I saw something change. Mm-hmm. Like I realized I wasn't present as I what I thought I was. Mm-hmm. I was expecting my kids to 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 move along life quickly so that I can meet these goals. It's like thinking that they just had to understand that, you know, mom's got to go to school. Mom's got to do this. You need to just get up. You need to just get moving. Let's go, you know? And I went into this pilot mode. Like, we're just going to live life like this. We Mm got to get moving, you know, and I don't want to hear, hear it. You know. Mm -hmm. And when I took one day I was sitting in class and my instructor asked me, she's like, Devana, how old is, um, how old's your, or no, your, your, your two-year-old is he a baby or a big boy and I said oh he's a big boy and she just like no he's a baby and I was like 
what? And then I'm thinking, like, I'm expecting him at home to be a big kid to, mm-hmm. like, understand things and to help me. And um, he's the one that, like, kind of has the most tantrums. And mm. I just um, feel, considered him the difficult child. And I went, I freaked out. I went home that night, and they were all in bed, and I saw his picture on the wall, and I just mm. cried. And I thought. I am so sorry. I'm trying to make you grow up and you're not ready to grow up and you're resisting it. And so the next day I, we were leaving and usually I'm like, just let's go. And he'll throw himself on the floor and I'll just walk off like, okay, we're leaving you. Bye. And, (laughs) and this time I stopped and I'm like, well, maybe the other kid can just carry this bag and I can hold his hand. Mm -hmm. So I reached out to him and he, he just got up Mm. Stop crying, grab my hand, and walk to the car. And I was like, it was really emotional. I was like, oh my God, he just wanted love, you know? <laughs> he just wanted me to, like, treat him like a baby. And, like, he he was left out. And it really, like, I think that changed. I was like, what am I, like, missing out on all these moments, you know? It, because... Because I got to get all these things done. I'm forgetting about them. Like my my time with them has been more about how much time I spend with them. Not quality, you know. Mm-hmm. And I want to have more moments of like quality time with them mm-hmm. than just out more hours, you know. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was more important. Yeah. Oh, so that class had a really uh, yeah. powerful impact on you. Yeah, it's, it changed me. That's when I'm like, yeah. I'm going to psychology. This is it. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. I knew this was the thing for me. And yeah. it just kind of like um, started bringing me back to um, kind of slowing down mm. and like um, recognizing that I have a huge influence on my children. Mm-hmm. And in order mm-hmm. for me to have an influence on them, I have to change how I'm thinking. I have to change how I parent. And yeah, it was, it was almost like, it's like being in church or something. I'm just sitting there like, amen to that, you know? Boy, yeah. It's so powerful though, because, you know, I asked you what helped you get in touch with yourself that way. And you said like, basically my children, like I looked at, so we were in this place where we're talking about connection to your ancestors and then you pointed to connection to your posterity as well and it's all like this interwoven chain Mm -hmm. that your children were the impetus for you to turn towards what you described as responsibility but basically connection to yourself connection to your people in a deeper way Mm -hmm. than existed before your children yeah because i feel like in a lot of ways the adults failed me and I didn't want to fail them. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we're still failing this generation, like the past generation, but no one's going to say it. No one's say, oh, we messed up. We're yeah. sorry. You know, we're, us adults are not handling these situations the way we should yeah. be. And we're this like evil empire is just getting bigger and bigger. You know, we're, we're not getting stronger, yeah. you know, we're not we're not adapting and evolving the way we should be. But this powerful, like dominant predatory class is just getting bigger. And where did we go wrong? You know, and that's where I feel like intelligence is one of the key things is how we're going to use our intelligence. I mean, 
John Trudell says that we don't, they don't want us to think. They don't want us to be smart. They don't want us to know these things. Otherwise, that's when people, they surveillance you and they start watching you. Then they, then you scare them when you start thinking, you know, they don't want you to think. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> certainly. I was wondering, you know, Devana, in addition to your voice, I was curious, well, you mentioned so many important issues like uranium mining, historical trauma drinking you know we didn't even really touch on this too and i think it's such a culturally relevant one as mascots and like oh, yeah. cultural context portrayal of i think the way i heard you describe it was like the way the indian should be kind of yeah thing. yeah all of these things seem so important i was wondering who are some of the voices that we need to pay attention to that we need to amplify and put the spotlight on i've heard you mention john trudell yeah well my sister amanda blackhorse she's She's the one who was in the middle of the fight, who took it on from Suzanne Hardro. And, you know, uh, from that, I don't, I don't really know too much about the legal stuff with that, but I know that they were saying it was something to do with age, um, where they didn't meet the certain criteria and all these stipulations. So they, they denied their case. So they kind of, my sister became that next person that Suzanne started to train, like, you know. This is um, what's well. Actually, my sister went to Chief's uh, game and she protested, and people were like spitting at them and mm. like throwing things at them and swearing at them, oh, and nobody around was doing anything. And she was just like outraged. So she agreed, I- "I'm going to do this. You know, let's do this." And so she became it became Black Horse at all. You know, uh, Washington. So she. Um, she just was, she was really forefront in this fight. And I didn't, at the time, I wasn't really sure. Like I was afraid for her because of all the things my dad said. But I started to think back to when I was in Detroit, when I was younger and the way people saw me and the way they thought that I was this um, cowboys and Indians type of Indian and what that did to me and how that made me feel bad about myself and made me feel ashamed of myself and how we didn't have a place to learn about ourselves and to see like a reflection of ourselves and that positive light I was talking about earlier and just the way people disrespect our culture when because my kids are Sioux they're half Sioux their dad was from Rosebud South Dakota and to have a headdress you have to earn that and some people it's a lifetime you know not everybody can wear those things and to see it being paraded around, mm-hmm. to see people disrespecting, you know, who we are to be holding up bloody scalps. And those are like signs of genocide. Mm-hmm. Those are signs of like, I mean, people gave bounties for us, for children, for women, for mm-hmm. men. And it was a way to kill us off. And I don't find any honor in that kind of in genocide period. So when people constantly try to tell me who I am and who I should be and what, you know, I'm honoring you, this is a way of honoring you. Why aren't you proud? It's, mm-hmm. 
and to me it's like no you're not honoring me you're actually disrespecting me and i'm not even that type of native american either but my kids are and i find it very disrespectful that you're uh because a lot of our stuff's being fragmented and commodified. A lot mm. of our culture, our language, our artifacts, our ceremonial tools put in museums and things like that. So basically, we're just being like taken apart and we're being treated like an object mm-hmm. that doesn't, something that doesn't have any kind of spiritual connection, like yeah. that savage type Indian. Mm, yeah we have so many important issues again mm-hmm. um i really appreciate everything that you've talked about today mm-hmm. um and yeah just bringing that to the show you know the interview kind of went different directions i yeah. never anticipated <laughs> i feel 100 percent fine with that i was curious i heard you mention a little bit about flagstaff earlier that mm-hmm. when you came here i think i had heard you re- refer to glendale as big city and then you came back here I guess I was wondering, can you talk a little bit about your connection to the land here in Flagstaff and essentially just like, I guess, what it means to you? Well, I want to, um, I feel like this is home for me and I feel like being within the boundaries of the four sacred mountains is really important for me to have that spiritual connection to the environment. I, it was hard for me to have that connection, you know, from a place like Phoenix, for me to be a part of these issues that are happening on indigenous land, like uranium mining, coal mining, those things are really difficult to do when I'm in another context. But I feel like creating a, a, a foundation, creating a home where these issues are happening and to actually be in it was really important. Because, like I said, my umbilical cord's buried on the Navajo Reservation, and yeah. I need to be here, you know? Like, it's almost like a calling. It's I need to do the work that I've been talking about. And in order for me to do that work, I have to be here. I have to be connected to the grassroots community around here. I have to be connected to my elders again. I have to be connected to family and I, there's no better place to do it than, you know, in a place that's sacred, in a place that's holy. And it's led to a lot of things because I found out, I mean, there's a lot of things happening right now that I would not really have known if I was away from home. Like there's the jail population here in Flag. And how disproportionate that is, how indigenous people make up majority of the population in the jail systems, but then majority of the people that live in flag are white. Mm -hmm. And it's like, how does that happen? You know, and how our unsheltered people are being treated. It's Mm -hmm. just, there's so many injustices that I feel like need to be addressed you know, from home before we can really try to change other things. Right. So like home, but also like a place where you can be connected to the work that you feel drawn towards. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, it's so powerful. Early on, um, you mentioned how, um, you like, uh, Western culture came in and mined both culture and the mind, 
um, the foundation of knowledge that the indigenous people had and took that away. And then you said, it was a quick comment you made, but you said, and now it's almost like they're trying to return to the knowledge we had yeah. way back when, which it was hard for me not to ignore. <laughs> like <laughs> Cody and I, our mission statement for Beyond the Pines is to connect to self, others, and the environment, mm-hmm. which is basically what you've laid out for us <laughs> over <laughs> and over today. <laughs> so so true. Um, yeah, what a powerful foundation of knowledge. And I feel like so fortunate to have been able to learn from you a bit about that today so thank you so much Devana yeah thank you for having me yeah yeah thanks for coming on the show we support you whatever whatever you do wherever you go mm-hmm. yeah yeah and so uh another thing that I just wanted to mention really quickly is Devana you so fluently and fluidly bounced between um authors and writers that are both native and then writers that come from Western culture, from counseling, from the field mm-hmm. of counseling psychology. Um, so I want to say that um, for those of you listening to this podcast, make sure to check out the description because we'll try and link to the people that you've mentioned and mm-hmm. in particular the voices that you just mentioned that would be really important to listen to. Yeah, so, I think a lot of the stuff I talked about is influenced by Winona LaDuke. So, okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. Great, 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 great. And we'll we'll put connections to all that links, those links in the description. So look for that if you're listening. No doubt. Thanks for tuning in. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Devana. Yeah, thank you. All right. We're back in the dunny. Devana just left. Uh, she, she's been sitting with us, hanging out in the dunny with us, sharing a lot of really powerful information. Powerful information, no doubt. Yeah. What a neat interview. Yeah, I would say just informative. Um, yeah, just really powerful. It, it was hard knowing when to stop because I think I probably would have used all of her time if she had it available just to hear more about her experiences. Certainly, yeah. yeah. And I think for me, I mentioned this just at the end of the interview, but it was so paradoxical and hard to avoid thinking about how she mentioned that Western culture came in and basically stripped away some of the ideas and wisdom, the knowledge that her ancestors had and said, this is the way to approach the world with that very Western approach to the world. And then um, she said, now it seems like people are coming back to understanding some of the wisdom that was in the knowledge they had about connecting to each other and connecting to their environment. It was hard to miss that as paradoxical because our mission statement is to connect to self others in the environment yeah she mentioned so many important things um sources of connection Mm -hmm. in her life Mm -hmm. and in her culture Mm -hmm. um they really stood out to me i was really drawn into what she was talking about um and i I really do feel that same sort of connection to the environment in the way that she was talking about Mm -hmm. it and that she was likening it to our mother you know um a long time ago, I did that talk on climate change mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. psychology, right? And we yeah. referenced E.O. Wilson's biophilia hypothesis and talking about how naturally, because of the way in which we've evolved, like we have a connection to this mm-hmm. earth. Mm-hmm. And we are the way we are because of our mother or because mm-hmm. of the earth. And mm-hmm. so I was really drawn into that. Mm-hmm. Um, I also couldn't help but just, I was what left a really big impression on me too just this image of her as a young girl on the reservation Mm -hmm. and thinking like, wow, something's just not right. 
and also having this feeling or like this this compulsion or like this impulse like i gotta go do something mm-hmm. like and i'm really impressed that she's following through on that like mm-hmm. she's living out that vision now yeah maybe feeling compelled to act and at first not knowing what that meant or how that was and so coming around to it after she mentioned having her children and feeling responsible for that so it's it's it, yeah. it was like she felt compelled but didn't understand herself well enough or I, I don't know for sure. I wouldn't know how to say that accurately, sure. but it was like she had to develop an awareness of what is this compulsion and then how do I enact that? How do I put that into action? Yeah. And, and so it's shown up, right? Yeah. Like when she's talking about her studies and what she's doing, I was fascinated or just again drawn into mm-hmm. when she's talking about uranium mining mm-hmm. and that social exhi- mm-hmm. uh, exhibition they mm-hmm. did. Um, that was really powerful stuff, yeah. I thought. Powerful energy in the room, too. I think that would be important to note. Um, there was one moment when she was speaking about how um, knowledge is intimidating to others, talking about how maybe majority culture or people in power don't want people to be informed. And mm. so when she's consuming information or learning and people in her culture are learning and learning about what has happened, um, she, she kind of portrayed that as that can be threatening to people in power. And I could feel the aura of that in the room, like her connection to saying, no, I am going to seek information. I'm going to learn. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm acting on this. Mm-hmm. This is important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So really, really powerful stuff. Um, one last thing for me, and I think I had mentioned this, and I, I would encourage people again, check out the description. So fluid in her ability to reference someone like John Bowlby. And yeah. then come back around and, and talk about her sister, Amanda Blackhorse, talk about others that uh, she could just reference so fluidly, yeah. basically, two strong cultures. Man, what an experience, huh? Just sitting with Devana today. Yeah. Yeah, so thank you so much to Devana Blackhorse for sitting in the dunny with Dan and I. Yeah. Well, why don't you take us out by shouting us out? No doubt. So first off, hit up our website, www.beyondflag.com. Flag spelled FLG. And you can always hit, hit us up on Instagram. Beyond hashtag story flag. Underscore. Underscore with the uh, hashtag post, in there. Post feed. Yeah, so hit us up on Instagram, beyond underscore flag. And uh, boomerang that story on Twitter. And boomerang your story on Twitter. In the TikTok. Yikes. <laughs> Just check us out on Instagram. All right. Take care. Love you.